When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and this is Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for the world's most interesting thinkers and doers to share their ideas on video. Since 2008, we've shared over 10,000 of them. On the Think Again podcast, we surprise our guests and me, your host, with unexpected clips from these vast and mysterious archives, and then we talk about them. And I'm very honored to be joined today by George Takei, author, actor, human rights activist, and master of social media. He was Mr. Sulu on the original Star Trek television show, and he's also the star and the inspiration behind Allegiance, a new Broadway musical about the Japanese-American internment camps during World War II. Welcome to Think Again, George. Thank you very much. How many lyricists did you have to hire before someone could find a word to rhyme with internment? <laughs> <laughs> we came across J. Quo, and he is the first and only uh, composer lyricist. He can do Japanese folk tunes, as well as jazzy Broadway show tunes, as well as soaring romantic love songs. He's an amazingly gifted guy. And those different kinds of musical styles are incorporated in Allegiance? And the sound of the 40s, that special sound of that period. Oh, wow, fantastic. Okay, here's how this works. Our producers have chosen short surprise interview clips for us to listen to and discuss. It's a little bit like a brainy cocktail party game where everybody wins. Shall we begin? All right, let's. Jonathan, what do you have for us? So this is from author Ben Parr about how to get and keep attention in our busy world. Attention is the common currency across all businesses. It's the most important currency you can have. Attention comes in many forms. There's the attention for if you turn your head because you hear a gunshot. There's attention for if you start concentrating on a speaker. And there's the type of attention that makes people long-term fans of a company like Apple or a celebrity like Beyonce. Attention has become more and more important over the last 10 years because there's so much more information than ever being produced. In the last two years alone, approximately 90% of the world's information was created, and we still have the same 24 hours of time. Immediate attention is our short-term and immediate and unconscious and subconscious reaction to certain sights, sounds, and other stimuli you can have certain things that will capture their immediate attention. Certain colors, certain symbols, certain sounds. Short attention is our short-term conscious concentration on a subject or an idea or an object. It's the kind of attention that you give when you're concentrating on an episode of Game of Thrones or you're listening to a keynote speaker. It's the type of attention where we decide we're going to pay attention to something. And what's really important about that is making sure that something... It really focuses on novelty and focuses on things that are new. And so long attention, which is the final stage of attention, really focuses on that long-term interest in a subject, person, or idea. Unlike short attention, which is focused on you know, short-term concentration on maybe an episode of House of Cards, long attention is becoming a lifelong fan and watching every single season. And you have to capture attention by going through the three stages. 
immediate attention to short attention to long-term attention. And you gotta start with the first to the second to the third, and that's the secret to capturing attention. We live in a chaotic world, particularly in New York City, and attention becomes a precious commodity because uh, we have so many distractions in our lives. Just walking down the sidewalk, that short-term and medium-term attention is so difficult in a city like this or in the technological world that we live in when we're bombarded with many, many things. So it takes a lot of organization, determination, and structure in order to be able to enjoy that kind of orderly attention uh, stages that right. he has. I enjoy what I do acting. So when I'm focused on a script, I'm focused on a script. One of the great pleasures of my childhood was reading in great depth. And now I find myself reading like 20 books at the same time on <laughs> Kindle and reading parts of them. And I'd be interested to hear sort of how you organize your life to be able to give yourself time and attention to do the things that matter to you. Well, you got to deal with a lot of the chaos. Like we are a theater people. Last night we went to the theater. And to get to the theater, it's all chaos in Times Square. But once you settle down, you can pay complete attention to the drama on stage. However, there was someone texting or doing something, and the actor noticed that. And while in character, he glared out at that individual, and the light went out. So again, your concentration on the drama was diverted for a brief moment. There's been a lot of that, and actually that reminds me of, uh, you know, apparently recently in a show, Patti LuPone. Yes, yes. Right? She's she famously. Took, did she take someone's cell phone? Yes. I think she did, right? What do you think about that? I mean, there you have the intrusion of the modern world, right? And then you had all this chatter on the internet that was like, no, it's the modern world. Get with it. It's okay. For no, people. it isn't. <laughs> it, you, should, uh, you know, you as an audience member, you have the responsibility to show not only respect to the actors on stage, but your fellow audience members. And you are being disrespectful, ruining their pleasure, as well as the work that the artists are offering you by doing whatever you're doing. Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir, because I mean, mm -hmm. I can't imagine living in a world where everyone constantly intruding on my attention is okay, where you know, distraction at every moment is accepted simply because we happen to live in a potentially distracting world of devices. So we try to organize our lives, what we expect that when we're in a theater, that everyone is going to be paying attention. But, you know, there are these rugged individuals, <laughs> the rebels, that will break that kind of common, just good manners. Well, and this is where it became a bit of a culture war, right? Because what you had was this voice that was allegedly maybe devil's advocate representing the new generation or something and saying, well, no, you know, the world is going to be distracting. These are old values that you want to preserve. So I guess that's the question. Do you George, support like, that? Are we old? Well, I, I do not support that. And my question is whether we are old fuddy-duddies, you and I, sitting here saying, no, the world must not march on like that. No, <laughs> because I believe in civility. Yes. Those people want respect for themselves right. if it's to their convenience. We have to have a common understanding. And when you're in a theater, you pay attention to the artists and you respect your fellow audience members. You like to read in a library. 
there's silence. As a matter of fact, we passed the Fifth Avenue Library, and I said, I haven't been there in a long time. And Brad told me, oh, you can't get books there anymore. It's all on computers. <laughs> and you know, I, it's a shame because I love the tactile part of reading a book, you know, particularly an old book, and to That's feel that texture and feel that age. About libraries, the last time I spent any time in a public library in New York, I realized that in order to survive, the libraries had decided to rebrand themselves as community centers, so you couldn't actually read in them anymore because it was mostly locals talking. Oh. There was no stern librarian glaring over her horn-rimmed spectacles going, shh. Oh, really? What a shame. <laughs> I used to love libraries for their almost temple-like hush. Yeah, it seems that that may be an endangered species, the classic library. Some of the things we lose with progress. And, you know, we, us old fuddy-duddies, <laughs> we'll fight for that quiet in the library with real books. That is one cause I can definitely get behind. Okay, what's up next, Jonathan? This is from behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman on how to collaborate with people who you strongly disagree with. There are different forms of adversarial collaboration. So one form is that you have people who disagree on some theoretical issue trying to conduct experiments that will resolve their differences or reduce their differences. And that's the first step in adversarial collaboration. Let's see what we agree on. And then let's try to trade our differences. Sometimes you need an arbiter to run the experiment, that's when relations are more tense. Instead of the reply and rejoinder format, you can agree to write a joint article in which you first settle what you agree on and then what you disagree on. You have to be willing not to win. That is, you have to be willing uh, to accept a draw. And to see that in the interest of science and, you know, and civility and other things, a draw is better than a win. By the way, it is not easy because people who, who think poorly of your work and of your ideas get on your nerves, and so you, you have to overcome that. The best example of adversarial collaboration that I have had was on issues of the boundaries of intuition. When is intuition marvelous and when is it flawed? And it was with Gary Klein, who is a well-known author, who was a great proponent of expert intuition. So we worked for six or seven years together trying to hammer out uh, our differences about whether intuition is valid or not. And we came out with an article that was actually, well, it was a bit in two voices, but on most things we agreed. And that was the best adversarial collaboration of all. He's talking about the ideal politician. That's what real politics is all about to collaborate, listen to right. opposite ideas and learn from them. Because I enjoy conversing with an adversary and I learn some things. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. And I incorporate it into my thinking and define that common ground. The problem with Washington right now is we don't have that. I am right, Ted Cruz says, and everybody else is wrong and they've got to agree with him or else we don't make any progress. We're gonna shut down the government. And that has happened. And how do we get this kind of thinking sold to the kind of congressmen that we have now? I mean, I guess there are certain issues on which 
one has to draw a line in the sand. The kinds of issues of human rights and social justice that you fight for. Aren't there times when it's simply impossible to sit down with somebody who believes something utterly opposite to what you know to be right? You have to have a bigger view. Like, for example, the struggle for LGBT equality. Bill Clinton was with us when he was president. He was the one that tried to integrate the military. And yet we wound up with don't ask, don't tell, because the climate wasn't right. He was a politician who caved in because he knew that it could not be done in that time. Right. But the time would come when the larger society has changed. So it's an understanding on our part of the larger picture as well as the specific issues that you're debating. He was talking as a scientist, and there, there are certain verities of science, and they both have to find that common ground, agree on a scientific truth. Politics, you're dealing with that fallible creature called humans. <laughs> In the theater, it is a collaborative enterprise. Well, so theater is a great example. Many of the people working in theater are strong personalities. And how do you collaboratively create something that is strong and pure and good and not simply mediocre, that preserves the passion of each of the individuals involved? We are there because we all have read the script and we find it exciting. So there's that common ground to begin with. And the interpretations may be different. But sometimes the different interpretation might enrich the tension that the scene is called for. If there's a guy who disagrees completely, that adds another color to that scene. But we all agree commonly on the drama itself. No one is going to throw a chair and stomp off home, or if they do, they'll come back the next or, day to rehearsal. Or, or maybe that can be worked into the scene. <laughs> yes. you know, I mean, that would be a powerful thing, <laughs> that moment when he throws down the chair. Last night, we saw Hand to God, and there's a scene where the guy kicks over the chair and knocks over the table and, and destroys a, a bookshelf. Maybe that came out of rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, right? So let's talk about a little bit about adversarial collaboration in the context of the issue of gay marriage and LGBT rights. How do you go about changing the mind of someone or listening to someone who sits there and tells you that God believes that you're a lesser human being because of your nature? You say, what if your son or your daughter is gay? Would you still feel that way? We try to personalize it, right. to deal with reality rather than some idea. And if they hold that higher than their own progeny and the love that they have for them, then they have to put that in the context of, good God, what kind of parent is he or she? That kind of societal disapproval. So, you know, you have to put it in the larger context. I think it must be hard sometimes for people to see past their ideology and to personalize something in that way unless it comes home to them. Yeah, and because even we're all fallible human beings, <laughs> and we eventually realize we are at fault. My saying that the book tells me that what my son is, is horrific. What am I supposed to care most about, adhere most to? What defines me as a person? And if you explain that picture to that person, they start thinking. 
well, maybe there's some fault with me because my neighbor, Jones, has a lesbian daughter and she's coming over with her girlfriend to visit the parents all the time and they're happy. And why am I so unhappy? You know, when we look back on when I got married to Brad 50 years ago, it would have been a very controversial thing on the basis of our interracial marriage. The discussion was on the fact that we're the same gender. But, you know, my aunt was married to a white man and a Canadian to boot. (laughs) (laughs) And there was uh, the whole furor in our family. But interestingly, and this was shortly after internment, my father, who's uh, the brother-in-law, he was opposed to it because he went through the horrors of the internment because of our race. He lost everything in the middle of his life. But our grandmother was the wisest one. We, we thought she would be the traditionalist, you know, and say, oh, no, no, you must marry your own kind. But she said, they're adults. They know the challenges that they're facing, but they're willing to face that because they love each other. Let them get married. The grandmother was the wise one. Grandmothers can surprise you. Yes, yes. <laughs> and she was, she was a, a fascinating lady. She lived to 104. Wow. And she was a dynamo way past 100. <laughs> All right, we're ready for round three. What do you got, Jonathan? So this is Ayan Hirsi Ali on a very inflammatory topic right now, Islam and Orthodoxy. Well, I look at uh, Sam Harris and Ben Affleck discussion, and I think there's a thinker and there's somebody who's not thinking. They both think of themselves as liberals. Sam Harris spends his days and hours and time thinking. So he's been following these things for a very, very long time. Ben, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas. And of course we do. Islam, no liberal doesn't okay, want to okay. criticize bad ideas. But Islam but why at this moment is the mother load of bad ideas. Jesus. So we have... We have that's just a like, fact. Like it's not, it's not, no. It is it's a, an ugly apostasy. Thing. So Mohammed is the only historic figure we cannot draw anymore. We can't discuss him without saying, peace be upon him. A historic figure whose power comes into the 21st century and is upsetting geopolitical structures. Would Ben Affleck play the part? He can play Batman, but would he play Mohammed? Any actor in Hollywood who is not willing to act that part should not go around making accusations of bigotry to others. I, I'm not denying not, that, that certain people are bigoted against Muslims as people, that's, right. and that's a that's problem. big of you. But the... But why have, are you so hostile to, about this it's, it's gross. It's racist. It's, it's not. It's, but it's so not. It's, so, it's like saying it's those so not, you're shifty Jew. You're not listening Absolutely to not. what well, we are saying. Islamic extremism is an assault on the ideas of liberalism, on the idea of innovation, on women, on gays, on tolerance, on civilization. You may choose not to see it and bury your head in the sand. It's a choice. When you attack the people who actually stick their heads out and accuse them of bigotry, that tells me, do you really know what you're saying? It's like, Ben, you're a great guy. Go and rethink this. Go and think. Go and think. Yes, as a Buddhist and as an actor, I can find my way to playing Muhammad. 
I'd like to talk about where this gets a little complicated, especially for Westerners, and you yourself are very much an activist for human rights. With our values of tolerance and openness, how do we deal with when a religion, any religion, begins to preach something other than oneness? Because certainly there are Buddhists in Myanmar who are killing others in the name of religion. You know, people have misinterpreted the teaching of Buddhism. I suspect these jihadists are extremists and misinterpreting the basic beliefs of the Muslim faith, because that's a faith of peace as well. I say to people, look at the example being set by Pope Francis, who leaves the Vatican to wash the feet of non-believers. It's that kind of oneness with what you are not that I believed in. Bill Maher and Sam Harris were arguing that there is something inherent in the teachings of Islam, along with the good stuff, that could potentially lead to orthodoxy. Is that not the case with every religion? That, that it has the potential, because it's a system, to want to preserve itself and therefore lead to orthodoxy? We are all human beings, and we can do great things, but we are also fallible. But on balance, would you say that you think historically that religion has done more good for people than harm? I don't know, because all of the horrific wars in history have been fought in the name of religion. Crusades, Inquisition. Right. <laughs> Some of the horrors of human history has been done in the name of religion. That's true. And I suppose that could be said of any philosophical system that in the wrong hands it can be misused. We are all human beings. Human fallibility. But some great people have shown us the way to understanding and oneness with living in this vast unknowable. I remember when I was a kid going to Sunday school, the teacher used the metaphor of this vast ocean with the currents and the forces, the wind and the gravitational pull working on them. And for a brief moment in time, the waters come together to form a little wave. And we are that little wave at that brief moment in time when it's that peak saying, I am me, I have done this and I can do that. And then the forces again make it part of the larger vast sea you return to where you came from. And that is how I see me. You know, I have an ego. I do indeed. <laughs> and I'm asserting myself. But I also understand that I'm going to go back to being part of that larger whole. I'm a part of uh, that fish I had for dinner last night. That's the Buddhist interpretation sure. of reincarnation. The English word reincarnation immediately conjures up, you know, the fish turning into me. But no, the fish is a part of me. And when I die, I'm buried and the roots with its tendrils might suck parts of me up and I become part of that tree and that trunk and then a leaf and the bird comes and picks at it and I become that bird. <laughs> that must be a very helpful way to view the world with the vagaries of, of a career in entertainment, the ups and downs and waves. And that, it keeps the ego in check. Yes, <laughs> right, which is something that maybe a lot of actors could use help with. I think so. <laughs> we should have more Buddhist actors. <laughs> yes, I think that would be good. 
And now, lastly, if I could ask you to do us the honor of <coughs> pressing the button on the random quote generator and reading for our audience the quote of the week. The greatest danger to liberty lurks in insidious encroachment by mean of zeal, well-meaning, but without understanding. Justice Lewis O. Brandeis, Olmstead versus United States. Exactly what we've been talking mm -hmm. about. Yep. In California, we had an attorney general who knew the law, obviously. He was the attorney general. He knew the Constitution. But again, this is uh, an example of human fallibility. He was ambitious. And he saw that the single most popular political issue in California back in 1941 was the get rid of the Japs issue. And he became an outspoken leader of the get rid of the Japs movement. And he made an amazing statement. He said that there's no report of spying or fifth column activity or any other form of treachery by Japanese Americans. And that is ominous because <laughs> Japanese Americans, he's Japanese, are inscrutable. You don't know what they're thinking. And as we speak, there is sabotage being planned. And so for this attorney general, the very absence of evidence was evidence enough. And he ignited an already combustible situation. And it was that kind of flame that reached the presidency. And Roosevelt ordered the uh, imprisonment of innocent Americans. Zeal without Zeal understanding. Zeal without understanding. George Takei, it has been so great having you on the show. Thank well, you thank so much you. for being with us. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with about the musical Allegiance, which I know is coming to New York in the fall? We uh, go into previews on October the 6th, and we open on November the 8th. But this is a project that, you know, as actors, whenever we get cast, it's our job to promote the play. But with this one, it is something that is so personal to me. I was a child when the internment happened, but it's my tribute to my parents because they're the ones that went through it. And despite all of the factionalization and division that happened and the anguish, my father's guidance explained all that to me and helped make me who I am. And it tells an important American story. It's about a Japanese-American family, but ultimately, it's about the American family, having our great American diversity. But we are a family. We subscribe to the same values as Americans. And sometimes we get carried away, as some married people do, and they divorce, or there are separations that happen. And it tells the story of that human spirit under these extreme circumstances. Tremendous stress on that relationship. And yet, ultimately, it's our love for each other that triumphs. Very timely. We, we need that kind of compassion. Absolutely. Too. It is a very timely musical. And that concludes this week's episode of Think Again. If you're out there listening and if you're liking what you hear, please do us a huge favor and go over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast and rate us, review us, 
It takes you maybe five minutes, but it is a massive help for our show. Thank you so much in advance to everyone who's going to take the time to do that. Join us next week for PJ Vote and Alex Goldman of the Reply All podcast. See you then.